Father, we do rejoice that we have, by your sovereign spirit, been brought into union with your Son, who is our righteousness, our covering, who is our hope, our joy, our life, who is our mediator and reconciles us to God. And we long not only to sing praises to you of these glorious realities, but we long, our Lord, to hear you speak to us. And you do that through your word. It is your word given to us. I pray that in it we would hear your voice and that we would rejoice at that voice and that we would be instructed as you would have us to be instructed. And particularly as we come to this most somber, in many ways, um, sections of all of your word, would you help us to uh, listen and heed your warnings? And would you help me to be clear with your voice and to be a useful instrument of not only the warning against sin, but a reminder of what it is to be a true servant of Christ. So we ask you for these things by your gracious spirit, and it's in your name we pray, Lord, amen. Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. We're in verses 13 through 36 this morning. Matthew 23, verses 13 through 36. And as I mentioned while praying, this is one of the most serious and well-known and important sections in all of Scripture. And in this section, Jesus exposes the error and the end of false teachers. Now I want to begin by noting that God has designed leadership in such a way that there are generally in this world two classes of people, those who lead and those who are led. Therefore, the great names that we remember throughout the annals of history are the names of those who have impacted the world because of their leadership. Leaders of people, leaders of business, leaders of nations, leaders of movements, leaders of empires. Yet far greater than the men of earth and the great things that these men accomplish on this world or in this world, God's eyes esteem of a superior importance, those who have been entrusted with spiritual leadership. And there are essentially two reasons for this. One is because those who have been entrusted with spiritual leadership are God's representatives, as it were. They represent His name, they represent His will to His people and to the world. And secondly, because those entrusted with spiritual leadership have greater consequences to their lives and to their ministries. Whatever happens among the leaders of men, they are relative only to this world. However, the consequences of spiritual leadership have eternal bearing on men's souls and well-being. Therefore, God has some of His highest words of praise for those who lead His people well, and some of His severest words of condemnation for those who lead His people astray. And so it is in our passage this morning. And the Lord here then gives some of His strongest words of condemnation. His strongest words of condemnation in that to the leaders of Israel. These are words that you're well familiar with and we will examine them more closely in the weeks ahead. But they are words that should sober us and bring to our minds and to our conscience the seriousness at which God takes those who would represent His truth to His people. 
Now the center phrase in this passage is at the beginning of verse 13 of Matthew 23. It is the phrase, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now Jesus will repeat this phrase seven times between verses 13 through 36. He says it at verse 13. He says it again at verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He says it in verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides. Pronouncing woe again on them. He says it again in verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, and hypocrites. Now, this is an absolutely devastating indictment and condemnation of these leaders of God's people. In fact, this kind of indictment can only be found at one other place in Scripture, and we'll consider this more next week, but that's John chapter 8, verse 44, when in a conflict with the leaders of Israel, he identifies the source of their spiritual ministry, and it is not of God, but it is of The devil, he says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do his desires. And such it is with these leaders. Now, because of its significance, this phrase, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, and its repetition throughout the passage, and because it serves as the banner over all of Jesus' condemnation of these leaders, we are going to consider it alone this morning. So my goal this morning is simply to do a broad overview of this passage, to do a broad overview of the condemnation of Jesus on these leaders, and to show that God's judgment against the hypocrisy of false leaders is indeed great. Now, we'll consider everything mentioned this morning in more detail as we go through. But there are three points I want us to notice briefly this morning. They're in your bulletin, but they are these. First, that God singles out the leaders of the nation. Secondly, that God condemns false leaders more severely than others. And third, God identifies the essence of their error, and it is hypocrisy. It is hypocrisy. Now begin with me by looking back at verse 13. Again at this phrase, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And this is under the first point, that God singles out the leaders of the nation. He singles out the leaders of the nation. And that is indeed what the scribes and the Pharisees were. They were the leaders primarily of the nation of Israel. Israel is a theocratic nation. It is a nation who is identified by its relationship to God and whose life is ordained or governed and structured by the very rules that God has laid down. And these are those who have stood in the place, as Jesus mentioned earlier, of the leaders of his people. At the beginning of the chapter, he said, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. That is, they have seated themselves in a place of leadership. They have presumed upon themselves to stand in the place between God and God's people and be the communicators of his truths, the guardians of the spiritual and the religious life of the nation of Israel. Now we've covered many times in the past the history of these two people, but by way of brief reminder, I want to remind you and us where they where they came from. Who are these scribes and these Pharisees? 
Now, the scribes in their history largely played a significant role in government, but really, that role was transformed after the time of their return into exile, and particularly through the ministry of the scribe Ezra. There was a class of scribes who were born whose primary objective it was to record and be faithful to the Scriptures, God's Scriptures to His people. In other words, they were the preservers of God's Word. And that class throughout the annals of history have preserved God's Word and are in large measure responsible for the text of Scripture in the Old Testament that we have before us today. Now by the time or in the time of the first century, the scribes were essentially considered the scholars, the scholars of the Torah, the teachers of the Torah, of the law of God. The Pharisees, whose name likely comes from a root that means to separate, evolved from another group known as the Hasidim, and they were came to prominence particularly around the 3rd century B.C. at the time when the Greek culture was encroaching again on the people of God and they raised up and they defended the truth of God against the apostasy or the potential apostasy of God's people that is known as the Maccabean Revolt. And out of that group, this other uh, ones that we know as the Pharisees descended and they were primarily committed to the preservation of God's Word through the law of God, and then what they considered a hedge of protection, the oral tradition. But by the time that we come into the first century, the Pharisees were those who were seen as having a primary commitment to the preservation of the religious life of God's people. They were seen as the guardians and the interpreters of Scripture. Now, why these groups were distinct, their occupations were closely affiliated. One church historian has noted this, Everett Ferguson, has said, Most of the scribes accepted the principles of the Pharisees, and the Pharisees followed the teaching derived from the scribal interpretations. In other words, they were closely linked in their religious commitments. The scribes, in fact, were really a subset of the Pharisaical party. You can see this in Acts 23.9, and Luke describes them, and they're at the council of the Sanhedrin. He describes them as the scribes of the Pharisaic party. And the fact that they were sitting on the council of the Sanhedrin identifies them as the leaders or part of the leadership of the nation of Israel. And one significant thing about the scribes and the Pharisees was their united opposition against the ministry and the person of Christ. Ten times Matthew will mention these groups together More than that individually, but together he will mention them ten times in the Gospel of Matthew alone. And each time that we encounter them, they are in conflict with the Lord Jesus Christ. They are opposing his ministry and Jesus is exposing them as being false deceivers and those who are leading his people astray. Let me mention two passages to you. We see them in Matthew chapter 12 in verse 38. When they came and they demanded of Jesus a sign, wanting to provoke him or draw out of him some way that he would right there on the spot authenticate his ministry in a way that would meet their approval. And so they asked for him for a sign to which Jesus responds to them that it is only an evil and adulterous generation which they are a part of which would demand a sign and is not believed in what he has already revealed to them. In other words, their question revealed their spiritual darkness, and Jesus calls them 
on that. They're mentioned again in chapter 15. And here they are coming to Jesus and they are confronting Him over their traditions. And they're asking Jesus, why is He breaking the tradition of the elders? That is then the oral law, that part of what was handed down uh, to them, that they esteemed to such a high degree that, you know, some old rabbinical statements, they placed it even above the Torah itself. But here they're coming to Jesus and they're confronting Him about ritual impurity. And Jesus turns the tables on them and He confronts them for their breaking the Word of God in order to keep their tradition. And then He says to them in chapter 15, verse 7, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain did they worship me, teaching as doctrine the precepts of men. And so this kind of opposition and this kind of conflict attended the ministry of Jesus and His interaction with these leaders at every point of His ministry. They they hounded Him at every step along the way. And as they intended to discredit them, in fact, the opposite happened. Jesus discredited them and showed them to be false leaders. So essentially, as we come into the Gospels, we see a conflict of the leadership of two different kingdoms. Now this is significant. And as was mentioned or hinted at at the beginning, that leadership is a significant way that God has ordained that He would execute His will, reveal His will, shepherd His people or through the leaders that He establishes. And at the heart of leadership, and this is really of all of leadership, but at the heart of leadership is the idea of influence. The influence, the ability to influence others, whether it be for good or for bad. And so these leaders wielded a primary spiritual influence on the religion and the spirituality of the people of God. And so they held a significant position. Now there were also, of course, the Sadducees, who was another group of leaders, primary political leaders of Israel at that time. They were essentially theological liberals, aristocrats, political opportunists, but they held positions of power within Israel. They were closely associated with Rome, but the Sadducees held very little spiritual influence over the people. That was resigned primarily to the Pharisees, to the Pharisees. As a matter of fact, and I had mentioned this uh, when we went through chapter 22, but the Sadducees essentially submitted, though they were in disagreement with them, they submitted to the Pharisaical religious strictures for the people, uh, for, um, before the people because they didn't want to bring the opposition of the people who held them, the Pharisees, in such high esteem. As a matter of fact, when Rome was destroyed in 70 AD, the Sadducees historically just fade off the scene. We don't encounter them anymore. But it is the Pharisaical party and the party of the Pharisees that rose to prominence and singular prominence. And they were essentially the ones that were the primary influence and uh, designers of the religion of Judaism after the fall of Jerusalem and really even to contemporary Judaism in many of its sects. Those are really following the influence of the Pharisees. So they had a significant uh, sway of, among the people of God. And this is crucial to understand, absolutely crucial. Because of the leader's influence, the spiritual condition of God's people then is closely bound to the spiritual condition and ministry of her leaders. Now we see this throughout and there's many places we could turn to. I'm going to 
take you to one that we're familiar with in Ezekiel chapter 34. I just want to briefly mention this. In Ezekiel chapter 34, now you know the context of Ezekiel is that God is through the mouth of his prophet primarily preparing his people and revealing to them the judgment of God that is coming upon them because of their failure to honor him and their failure to obey his word. In chapter 34, through the prophet Ezekiel, God lays the blame for the waywardness of his people and for the judgment that's going to come upon them squarely at the feet of her leaders, of her shepherds. Verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophecy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophecy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord, Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. In other words, they are living greedy lives, setting aside the holiness and the commandments of God that they could benefit themselves rather than benefit the people by instructing them in the ways of the Lord. He says in verse 5, They were scattered, the people, for lack of a shepherd. And they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth. And there was no one to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my flock has become a prey, my flock has even become food for all of the beasts of the field for lack of a shepherd. And my shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Verse 10, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. Tremendous words. And God is essentially saying, look, my people are spiritually weak, they're scattered, they're ignorant, and judgment is coming because you have failed to fulfill your responsibility to lead them in the right way of righteousness and to honor their God. And therefore, I hold you doubly responsible and you will bear the weight of your guilt severe severe words and so these leaders that Jesus is addressing in Matthew 23 are directly responsible for the condition and the spiritual blindness of his people and we'll consider this more next week but they are directly responsible even for their own the people's rejection of Christ himself Now, I want you just briefly then to consider the importance of this. These are the leaders of the nation that is the only light of the truth of God in all of the world. God has no other witness other than His people, and in this time, the leaders of the nation or the nation of Israel. And so these who are responsible to guard that witness of God to the world are here being accused of hiding that very knowledge of God from His own people and therefore from the world. They were blinding the people to the glory of God. And therefore, because of this influence, it's necessary for false teachers and false doctrine to be exposed. And that is why Jesus singles them out. And the scene is most likely this, as we saw at the beginning of the chapter, that the disciples were there and the crowds were there. But now, even in that context, he 
focuses his attention directly upon these scribes and these Pharisees, these leaders among the people, and gives them this most severe condemnation. Now, I want to make an obvious point here, that Jesus' ministry included far more than the condemnation of false leaders. Now, that might seem obvious, but I I think it's worthy to mention here that because Jesus at times for the good and the protection of his people called out these false leaders and in the most severe language that was not his primary ministry. And I note that because some people seem to think that their whole Christian duty is constantly to expose false ministries and to critique and to find what is wrong with other ministries and other ministers of the gospel. And this has a place obviously but it is not the main of Christian proclamation and can easily lead to a censorious attitude. However, that said, this does remind us of a very important truth, and namely this, that the church has a responsibility to expose false teaching and false teachers. Just as at that time the nation of Israel was the witness of God on the earth and among men, so it is the church is the light of the world. And if that message and the message of the church, the message of God and of the gospel is perverted, then those who are leaders in the church have a responsibility to confront that error head on and to expose it. Indeed, Paul calls the church in 1 Timothy 3 the pillar and the support of the truth. And it must be guarded at all cost. And that's why it is the responsibility of leaders to expose those who would distort the message of Christ. And we live in a culture, of course, in which any denunciation of another leader is viewed as unloving, critical, harsh, unnecessary. It is because of a false view of unity and love. But the most unloving thing to do, both as a leader in the church and frankly as a Christian, is to allow error to reign unchecked. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. And when it comes to calling out error and when it comes to calling out sin, it requires a great deal of wisdom and clarity. But it is necessary. And I would note also that it is not calling out error in every secondary issue, but the error that he is primarily concerned with and that is inciting such anger from Jesus is that error which confronts the very saving message of God and the very nature of God. And when that is the case, then it is by all means necessary to call those out. We could give many examples. Let me give you one in 1 Timothy chapter 3. You don't have to turn there. But Paul did not hesitate to do this. This was rare in some uh, overall, but yet when it was necessary, he did it, calling out false leaders by names. He says in verse 20 of 1 Timothy 1, Among these is that some have made shipwreck in regard to the fate. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. And it was appropriate for him to do so because of the influence of these likely elders in the church there at Ephesus. The point being made here, however, is that they are leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. They're the primary influencers of God's people, and therefore God holds them doubly responsible for their teaching and error. And as James said, they will have, as will all teachers, a stricter judgment, a stricter judgment, and a more severe condemnation. Let's look at the second point, then that God condemns false leaders more severely. 
He says, woe to you. Woe to you. This is a pronouncement of judgment. It's a pronouncement of judgment. And it finds striking parallels in the Old Testament where God often uses this language to speak of His judgment against the wicked and the rebellious of His people and even of the world. Just listen to a few examples. The term is used over 40 times. Let me just give you a couple of instances of that. Isaiah 3.11, he says this, Woe to the wicked, it will go badly with him, for what he deserves will be done to him. Isaiah chapter 30, 11, he says, Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan but not mine, and make an alliance but not of my spirit, in order to add sin to sin. In Jeremiah 23, 1, he again brings this pronouncement of judgment on his shepherds. And he says, Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Judgment is going to come upon them. Lastly, in Ezekiel 2.10, he says to the prophet, when he spread it out before him, that is the word of the Lord, it was written on the front and back, and written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe. The destruction that was going to come upon God's people for their sin. And so this is a pronouncement of judgment. It is a pronouncement of judgment. But before we look at what that judgment entails, it's important to note that this is not a pronouncement of judgment from unrational or irrational anger. It is not from a heart of harshness or meanness. It is a pronouncement of judgment that comes from a heart of perfect love. The very embodiment of the love of God is the one who is pronouncing these things against the leaders. It has been noted that the anger of the heart of love, broken by stubborn human blindness, is what we see revealed here in the heart of Jesus. Another is said of these condemnations of Jesus, that they are the angry laments of wounded love, incited by compassion for those religious religious leaders who have gone astray. Another said it is an expression of both compassion and regret. And that's true because at the deepest level, though the condemnation is severe, God would rather that they, and any false leader, would repent, that they would turn from their sin. Ezekiel says, that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. There's not some gloating or sinister glee in the condemnation of these leaders. There is a heartbrokenness. Indeed, at the end of the chapter, he's going to weep over Jerusalem because of the destruction that is coming to her. This breaks the heart of Christ. These are those who should love him, and yet they have rejected him. These are those who should be instruments for the spiritual good of his people appointed by him, and yet they are for the means of their destruction. And again, I would note that love seeks then what is best for others and hates what destroys and harms them. And these warnings are not even so much for these leaders, although they're directed to them, but they are for the people to be warned from the spiritual poison that is coming from their lives and from their ministry. He wants to warn them and he wants to warn us. In Romans 12, 9, Paul says this, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. And that is essentially what Jesus is demonstrating here. And again, you have to imagine the sound of this. 
to those who were hearing. We open our Bibles and we're transported back to the first century, but this was real time for them. And they would have been absolutely shocked to hear these words against this group of people. These were, again, the leaders, the spiritual leaders, respected and revered among the people. There is no group that would have been less likely to receive this condemnation, and yet Jesus lays it at their feet. Judgment begins with the house of God, and it begins with her leaders. And it's frightening. It's frightening if we truly understand it. So what is Jesus saying to them then? What does he mean when he says, woe to you? Well, it is a pronouncement not only of judgment, but of severe judgment. The idea of woe has two basic senses. One is this. It denotes pain or displeasure. And secondly, a state of intense hardship or distress. One has described it in this way. It is a cry of pain terror, indignation, and sometimes threat, a declaration of misfortune, end quote. It is an announcement of something terrible, something terrible that is coming. We see that as a matter of fact against just the calamity that is coming because of terrible things on this earth. In Matthew 24, 19, he says, Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. And there he's referring to the revelation of the Antichrist when he breaks his covenant and he turns on the people of God and wrecks extreme, extreme distress and havoc on them. In Revelation 18:16, it is the cry of the wicked merchants at the destruction of Babylon. They say, Woe, woe. How distressed they are at the city of their wealth, destroyed before their eyes. However, it most often refers to the pain and distress that comes as a result of God's judgment upon the sin of the world. Probably one of the most dramatic examples of this comes in Revelation chapter 8. He says this in Revelation 8.13. Then I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. And it is followed in the remaining chapters the destruction that God is going to bring as a result of those woes. And it is terrible. It's terrible. So when Jesus uses the term here, he means it in the fullest possible sense. The fullest possible sense. There is a part of it that includes the coming earthly judgment again at the end of the chapter when he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you have stoned your prophets and those sent to you. You would not let me gather you together under my wings as a hen does her chicks. And he says in verse 38, Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. And he mentions it again at the beginning of verse 24. It means there's going to be a total, total destruction. And so there's certainly that warning that is a part of this, that everything that you hold dear, everything that you're resting in is going to be removed from before your eyes. It's going to be destroyed. But he's saying more than that. But he's saying more than that. It's a pronouncement of them also of their eternal condition that is awaiting them. Look at what he says in verse 13. As he pronounces this woe, or excuse me, in verse 15, he says this. 
He says, and when he becomes one, in other words, one of your converts, that you go out to make a convert to your form of religion, your false form of religion, he says, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. A son of hell. That's behind this woe. He'll say at the end of verse 24, that those who are unfaithful and not ready for him at his coming... He says he will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this is the severest kind of condemnation that he's bringing. Their destruction is going to be complete. It's going to be total. And he's going to make that abundantly clear. And the severity of the judgment then reveals the reality of their true condition. And he reminds them that unless you repent, you will bear it fully at the hand of a righteous God. And again, this is a staggering reality, utterly sobering to a false religionist. Jesus is saying that they will bear fully their guilt as sinners, but what makes this so striking is this, is Jesus is essentially saying this, that not only as sinners will you bear the righteous indignation of God, but he's saying this to leaders, and so he's essentially, or the spiritual leaders, that you will bear the righteous indignation of God in your religion and in your religious devotion. In other words, those very things that give you confidence that you will escape the righteous judgment of God are the very things that incite it and provoke it and fuel it. Put another way, it is their very religion and religious efforts that are a constant provocation to a holy God. And we're reminded then of the words of Isaiah in chapter 1 when he says, I hate your, your feasts, I hate your new moon festivals, bring your worthless offerings to me no more. Essentially, they are a stench in my nostrils. I cannot bear them. So this is serious stuff, very sobering. To know and to be around the truth so close to the knowledge of God only to pervert it is one of the worst possible predicaments. It is one of the worst possible situations uh, to be in because that one is a recipient of greater wrath. And there is a simple principle of divine judgment that you're familiar with and that we see over and over again in Scripture and in the ministry of Jesus. And it is this, that the more light and the more truth sinned against, the greater the consequences for Suffering, of suffering. He said that, you'll remember back in chapter 11 of Chorazon and Bethsaida, because they rejected the miracle ministry of Jesus and the teaching ministry of Jesus, he says it's going to be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for you on that last day. Probably the greatest example of this, however, comes from Judas himself. After being betrayed, Jesus said of him, the Son of Man is to go, or before being betrayed, uh, soon to happen and later that night. He says, The Son of Man is to go just as it is written of Him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. So Judas will bear a unique judgment from God and is even now. And so it is with these leaders because of their influence, because of their position, and because of their false ministry leading the people of God astray, it is going to be worse for them because there is a stricter judgment. 
He says that also in 2 Peter chapter 2 reminds those false teachers who had tasted the, uh, some measure of the truth of God and yet turned on it and became hypocrites and destroyers of his people. And he says it would have been better for them. It would have been better for them if they never would have even known the way of righteousness than to know it and to turn on it. And so it is with these people. Before we go to our last point, I would just note that very often it seems that there is a sense from some people that if one is religious or a part of some kind of religious instruction, then that's helpful and that's a good thing. I remember before I was saved, I used to think that as long as they were in a church and talking out of the Bible, then it was a good thing and that they were all basically the same, but nothing could be farther from the truth. There are true teachers and there are false teachers. There are people who lead people to Christ and people who blind them to Christ and from the saving truth of God. But my main point here is simply this, that there is a grave responsibility to leaders and teachers in the church and a grave accountability to God for teaching error. Let's note lastly here the third point. God identifies then the essence of their error and it is hypocrisy. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Hypocrites. In other words, hypocrisy is the source of the fountain from which every one of their other errors flows. They are hypocrites. Now this is one of the most devastating indictments in all of Scripture. And I believe one of the most fearful words in all of Scripture is to be called a hypocrite. And particularly a religious hypocrite. And yet, that is true of so many of religious people and those who would claim to be Servants of God. And yet Jesus reserves his strongest words for them. What does it mean to be a hypocrite? Well, in Webster's Dictionary, it's defined this way. A pretense of virtue, benevolence, or devotion. Another described it this way. The practice of claiming to have moral standards or belief to which one's behavior does not conform. Pretense. In other words, it describes one whose inner life does not match up with their outer lives. In other words, their loves, the things that they have confidence in, their motives, their thoughts are not consistent with what they say or do or consistent with the truth. Now, interestingly, the term hypocrisy doesn't appear much in the Old Testament, but it's rather described, for example, like in Psalm 12, 2, he speaks of those who have flattering lips and a double heart. It speaks of those who are duplicitous in their nature and in their actions and in their speech. It is connected with lying and deception. In the New Testament, it comes from the, a noun that, has an, that had the original idea, interestingly, of to give an answer. To give an answer to someone. It came to be used of an actor whose job it was seen as to interpret a character to others. To, to, uh, his main priority was of interpretation. It was to make something believable to the people. And that wasn't really a negative term at the time, but it came, and certainly by the time of the first century, that term had an almost exclusively, almost exclusively negative context or uh, pretense or meaning. And it had the sense of pretense or pretender. Now, the history of the term then helps give a fuller sense of how it plays out in a person's life. There were two primary professions that this, that this term was associated with and out of which the later meanings grew. And it were these two professions, orators and actors. Orators and actors. Now, an orator is simply one, basically, who's trained in rhetoric. 
who's trained in rhetoric. In other words, they have the ability to powerfully move and persuade people through the spoken word. And that gives us an important illustration here because the skill of oration did not require that the one who was speaking believe what he was speaking about. It only mattered that he had the ability to convince them and to powerfully move them in the way that he wanted to go. And so it is with religious hypocrisy. The hypocrite, their concern is not what they say or do, it's truthfulness as much as it is that others believe it to be so. That they believe it to be truthful. The second profession that we're more familiar with, because the term still applied to this in the time of the first century uh, at times, of an actor, an actor on the stage, a hypocrite, one who wore a mask, one who portrayed someone other than who they really were. And again, this is very illustrative of the meaning of the term and how it works out in someone's life. A good actor is someone who takes on the persona of his character. He has to commit himself. A good actor has to commit himself to who that character is. He has to make it believable. He or she has to make that person believable. It's not who they are, but in as much as they are committed to that character, you believe that's who they are for that time and for that period. They are acting. They're playing a part. And so it is with a hypocrite. And so it is. They must be committed and they are committed to the character of righteousness that they're trying to display, though it isn't true of who they are on the inside. And as a matter of fact, this is why it is a religious hypocrite more than anyone who is angry and volatile and violent at being exposed because that's their whole identity. And when you expose a hypocrite for what they are, a religious hypocrite, then it is met with the most violent reaction. I think we can all testify that some of the most putrid kind of hatred and rejection that I have received, and I know you yourself, are from those whom you expose as religious hypocrites, whose life does not match up with their profession. They seem to protect that at, with everything that they have, even to death. And we see that in the life of Jesus as he confronts them. Now, I want to just make one point, and we'll build on some of this later. Hypocrisy, however, does not have to mean that that person is being intentionally deceptive. Now, we're going to see that primarily in the lives of these, but it doesn't have to mean that. In other words, somebody can be a hypocrite and yet have a measure of sincerity in what they're doing. You see that in the life of Paul. He was totally committed before he came to Christ to Judaism thinking that he was correct, but his life was a contradiction to the truth of the God he complained. And interestingly, in rabbinic literature, there's many, many comments at which they confront the danger of hypocrisy, and yet they are the ones who are perpetrating it. It doesn't always have to mean that there is the intention to deceive, although that is very often the case at some level. It can refer simply to inconsistency of life with doctrine or to intentional deception. Now, I want to just briefly then consider how Jesus confronted these leaders in their hypocrisy. We're going to do just a jet tour through the Gospel of Matthew and remind you of these encounters that you're already well familiar with. He does so at the beginning of Matthew chapter 6. He gives the warning then of beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. And so he confronts them And he says that in all of your religious activity, which is good, prayer, 
giving, and fasting. Your devotion was not truly to God, but your devotion was being thought of being devoted to God. In other words, what they were pursuing was not a genuine expression of worship to God, but being thought of giving a genuine expression of worship to God, because that then was their confidence and it was their power base. In Matthew chapter 7, 5, he says, You hypocrite, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And here he describes hypocrisy as the inability to see the magnitude of personal sin while correcting the others. One thing that we try to apply to our own life and teach our children is this, is that if your sin or somebody else's sin is more grievous to you than your own sin, then that is hypocrisy. And so it was with these. They were greatly concerned about the sin in other people's lives, but they were little concerned about the sin and the wretchedness in their own hearts. That is a mark of hypocrisy that he confronts them on. He does so again in Matthew chapter 15. We already looked at that. But you can be sure that many of those thought they were offering sincere worship to God, though in fact they were not. Because their heart was not so much engaged with honoring God again as it was that they thought they were righteous before God because of their religious actions. Matthew chapter 23 then we'll see it repeatedly and he's going to really condemn them here in four categories. Four categories that we're going to look at in the coming weeks. And they are these. He's going to condemn them for in their hypocrisy, corrupting salvation and teaching a way to know God that leads to hell and destruction. He's going to condemn them in verses 16 through 22 for externalizing worship in a way that actually promotes the blasphemy of God's name. Thirdly, in verses 23 through 28, their hypocrisy is going to be marked by how they falsify righteousness by promoting an external religion that allows and fosters inward lust. And fourthly, he's going to condemn their hypocrisy for giving pretentious honor to past saints while promoting the same teaching that led to the murder of the righteous. So whether it be to win the applause or admiration of others, to offer worship to God from a heart that doesn't truly love Him, or to worship God but in a way that counts spiritual merit to self, whatever it might be, hypocrisy is a deadly, deadly sin. And these are the marks of false teachers and false professors. But you know it can also be true of believers too, can it? That we can have hypocrisy that can find a foothold sometimes in our life. And I want to just briefly introduce this idea to you this morning before we come to our closing point. And it's this. Two ways how you can discern in your heart between a religious hypocrisy and a true and a sincere act of devotion to God. Very simple. I'm going to just mention them to you. First is this. In religious hypocrisy, there is a satisfaction, a security that comes when we're admired by others. When we're admired by others. That becomes the end then of the deed. However, in the sincere heart, the satisfaction and joy comes from having offered to God sincere obedience. In hypocrisy, there's a satisfaction in whatever accolades our works bring from others. In the redeemed heart, there is a great sensitivity to that kind of duplicity and there is a satisfaction only in the glory that it brings to God and the, offer, and the act of worship offered to Christ. So you can ask yourself then this question. In my religious activity and the things that I do, what brings me the most pleasure? The praise of others or the glorifying of God? What brings me the most? If it is the praise of others, 
then that is hypocrisy. And we can see that sometimes when someone only wants to serve in those ministries or in those capacities that will bring them the most attention. Secondly is this. In a hypocrite, there is confidence that comes from the religious activity itself, a sense of having met God's requirements, of God's being pleased with them because of what they have done. In a sincere heart, all their confidence is in Christ. And the believer, the one who has the Spirit of God, even in their best work, confesses with Paul and says, there is nothing good in me that is in my flesh. Wretched man that I am, I stand before God only because of the righteousness of Christ. And in my best deed, there is enough sin still to condemn me. And then then produces humility. It produces humility. Now I want to end this morning then with a contrast. A contrast. And as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, let's consider briefly the opposite of hypocrisy, which is sincerity. As opposed to the false teachers and false professors, the true child of God and the true leader in Christ's church is marked by sincerity and is marked by integrity. Indeed, this was true of Jesus. His life was absolutely pure. And this was the very testimony of the Father, wasn't it? At the baptism, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It was his own righteousness, his own purity, his own holiness that was being testified to by the Father himself. Paul, as Peter describes him in this way, Christ, who committed no sin, 1 Peter chapter 2, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And it was because he was pure, it was because he was the spotless Lamb of God, and because there was no hypocrisy or deceit in him, that he could also be the one who bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and hypocrisy and live to righteousness. And as it's the mark of Christ, so it's the mark of his teachers. Listen to how Paul describes his ministry in 2 Corinthians 1.12. He says, For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you. You ask Paul what was the heart of his ministry? What was it that gave his ministry power? What was it that gave his ministry credibility? It was his sincerity. It was his integrity. He says, We have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. That's the mark of a true teacher, is integrity. And it's the mark of a genuine believer. So David could say, what do you desire, God? You desire truth in the innermost being. This is the godly sincerity that marked the early Christians. Listen to Acts 2.46. Day by day, continually, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. There was a pure expression of their love for Christ and for one another. And so it is, as we come to the table this morning, that we check our hearts for our sincerity and our walk before the Lord. And we want to check our hearts and make sure that there is nothing duplicitous about us. 
There is no secret lust or sin that we're hiding in our hearts. There is no secret area of obedience to the Lord that we are unwilling to submit our wills to. And we try to cover it up by saying we're obeying in other areas, but there is an area that maybe we're unwilling to obey. Whatever it might be in our hearts, we want to come before Him in all sincerity. And so Paul could say, Therefore let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So this is a time for us to rejoice that ultimately we can do that if we know Him because Christ has stood in our place. And even though we know that we are not pure, we can confess our sins and in Him be pure and still live a life of integrity. But for those who are convicted in their conscience or can honestly look at their life and say, you know what, my life doesn't really match up to the gospel and what repentance looks like. I have a lot of other loves and a lot of other things that are more important to me than serving and loving Christ. Now is the time for you to search your heart, to get right with the Lord. And of course the table is open to everyone who is right with the Lord in a right relationship with Him through Christ, a believer who's walking in obedience to Him. But it is closed to those of whom that is not true, and we'd ask you to examine your heart. Let's pray, and then the men will come forward. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. And we do thank You that apart from the grace of Christ, apart from Your grace in sending Your Son and your grace, our Lord Jesus, in coming and redeeming us from our iniquity, that all of us would be in this camp. All of us. And yet, for those of us who know you, you have brought us to repentance and faith, union with your Son, and the Spirit of God in us opposes anything that is hypocritical, duplicitous, untrue, inconsistent, and lacking integrity in our heart. And we know that you'll give us no rest as long as that's the case. Father, we also know that hypocrisy can be the most blinding of sins and even as we see in the lives of those that we encounter in Scripture that they can think that they're offering service to you while in that very act committing the sin of hypocrisy. And so help us, Lord, not to be blind to that in our own hearts but by your gracious Spirit reveal it to us that we might know the joy of walking in openness and integrity with you. And we might know the blessing of an unbroken communion with you by the Spirit. And we ask you to do your work in us now as we take these elements and and worship to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.